Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In America, the Democrats' fourth debate is tonight. We'll take a look at what to expect. And we'll examine a far quieter battle, that for the Republican nomination and its most unlikely candidate. And the best marathon runner in history shattered his own record this weekend, finishing in less than two hours. Eliud Kipchoge's triumph isn't one for the record books because he had help from pace runners, but he may have had much more help from his shoes. As President Donald Trump's impeachment inquiry marches on, Democrats are vying for the chance to take him on in next year's election. Tonight, a dozen candidates will cram on stage for the fourth primary debate. As second-tier candidates fight to get noticed, under the spotlight will be the two frontrunners, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. Our democracy is paralyzed. And why? Because giant corporations have bought off our government. And former Vice President Joe Biden. And that's why we have to win this time. That's why we have to take back the White House. And that's why I'm running. Mr. Biden had been in the lead all year. But as Mrs. Warren supports soars, new polls show her overtaking him. At the moment, the Democratic race looks like two frontrunners, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. John Prido is our United States editor. Warren has the slight edge in terms of momentum, which is an overused word in campaigning, but nevertheless matters in terms of people's perceptions. She's been doing better recently in the polls. Our polling average has them neck and neck on 25%. A little bit behind them, you have Bernie Sanders on 15 And then behind him, you have a whole load of candidates who are kind of scrabbling around 5% or less in the polls. So three candidates, definitely more prominent than the others. And until recently, there was a clear frontrunner in the form of Joe Biden. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. What's your read on that? No, it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Elizabeth Warren has been on an upward curve since early July. The Democratic debate tonight, there'll be a dozen candidates on stage in Ohio. It'll be really the first time in the debates that Warren has been seen as the front runner. And there's a certain pressure that comes with that. You know, these primary debates are often an exercise in kind of get the front runner. So it'd be interesting to see how she handles that. Does it tell you anything about the national mood that Mrs. Warren has been rocketing ahead or indeed that Mr. Biden has fallen behind? It tells you something about the uncertainty, I think, within the Democratic primary electorate in that I think more than anything else, Democratic voters want somebody in 2020 who they think will beat Donald Trump. And prior to a month or two ago, it seemed fairly clear that Joe Biden looked like the best fit for fairly obvious reasons. He is an elderly white guy 
going up against another elderly white guy. Lots of Democrats taking pragmatic view thought that that would neutralize President Donald Trump's advantage with white non-college voters. And I think Democrats still want the person who they think is most likely to beat President Trump. But at least some of them have changed their minds about whether Biden is indeed the likeliest person to do that. He hasn't been great in the debates. Analysts like me tend to slightly overweight debates because we watch them. And frankly, most voters don't. But nevertheless, he hasn't been terrific. Elizabeth Warren's been very strong so far, but we'll see. There's still a long time to go. Is there anything to that changing dynamic that has to do with the fact that Mr. Biden's name has been invoked in part of this Ukraine story? the accusations against Mr. Biden's son, Hunter, by President Trump in terms of being on the board of a Ukrainian gas company, his dealings in China. Do, do you think that's affecting the poll numbers that we're seeing now? I don't think so. His campaign has been trying to spin it in a positive direction, saying, well, you know, President Trump coming after us shows that Biden is the person Trump is most worried about. And I think there's some truth to that. In any case, the movement in the polling has less been a decline for Biden and more been an increase for Warren, who's taken votes away from Bernie Sanders and Buttigieg. So I don't think the Ukraine stuff has hurt Joe Biden so far. What will be interesting is to see if Democrats break the sort of non-aggression pact in the debate tonight and raise the appearance of conflicts of interest, though the calculation there has to be, well, the man still might be the nominee in 2020. And I think some members of the field at least will worry a bit about damaging their own side. The bigger picture there that draws these allegations in is now a full-blown impeachment inquiry against President Trump. How much do you think that's going to affect what we'll see on the stage tonight? Well, this debate takes place against the backdrop of some particularly interesting testimony in the House this week from people like Fiona Hill, Gordon Sondland, America's ambassador to the European Union. That said, I don't think there's a big divide within this field about impeachment. The difference probably in the field is more around when candidates decided that impeachment was the right thing rather than backing impeachment, which is pretty much universal among the candidates. In a sense, it seems that the campaigning is framed around Mr. Trump and reactions there too. I mean, aside from everything that is directly related to the incumbent, what are these campaigns really about? Well, in the last debate, there was a lot about healthcare policy. Healthcare is actually really interesting because of the dynamics of the race. So Elizabeth Warren thus far has pretty much just said, I believe what Bernie Sanders says on healthcare. If you see Bernie Sanders drop away because of his own health problems, this will be the first time we've seen him on the trail effectively since he had his heart attack. Then Elizabeth Warren's proposals will come a bit more under scrutiny. And there's some interesting things there, Jason, because she has said that she's for a single payer system of sort of nationalizing American healthcare, getting rid of insurance companies and so forth. But if you look back at the bill that she introduced as a senator earlier this year to the U.S. Senate, it's a much more kind of moderate incremental sort of thing. So there's a question about whether she is doing something that candidates often do, some time on a thing of adopting a position that looks more ideologically extreme in the primary only to dump it later on, or whether she genuinely has changed her position. Though, If she has changed her position, it's odd that she introduced an entirely different bill earlier this year in the Senate. Well, let's look at that more in the round. Compare, for instance, this field of Democratic candidates with past fields and so on. It would be easy to assume that the political forces are pushing everything towards extremism and in the Democrats to the left. I think if you look issue by issue, your observation about the leftward drift is absolutely right. So look at healthcare proposals. 
they're clearly to the left of where they were in the last election cycle for Democratic primary candidates. The same is true on taxation, wealth taxes, things like that. That said, it's not obvious to me that that same change has been going on among Democratic primary voters. The thing they want more than anything else is somebody who can defeat Donald Trump. And they're prepared to endorse somebody who's pragmatic, moderate ideologically, if they think that person has the best chance of beating Trump. I don't think there's been a kind of observable huge shift to the left among the electorate. And actually, the candidates all seem to assume that the electorate has moved a long way left. But if you get into the numbers a little bit, Elizabeth Warren's support comes primarily from white Democrats, and she does extremely well with college-educated Democrats. Joe Biden, who's more moderate ideologically, more middle of the road, does far better with non-college-educated Democrats and far, far better with African-American Democrats. And there's an argument about what the party strategy should be for winning in 2020, but there's a very good argument, I think, there that the candidate needs to win back some of the non-college white voters who Donald Trump did well with in the Midwest, and also to make sure the candidate appeals to enough African-American voters. So on that purely strategic, who is the best person to win in 2020, you could still look at the numbers and make a pretty good argument for Joe Biden. And with all that said, do you think that tonight's debates will actually move the needle much? Debates are a great interest for looking at the policy positions and seeing what the candidates are like under pressure. In terms of providing sort of breakthrough moments that change the race, that's quite rare. That doesn't happen that much. What tends to happen is you get a bit of short-term movement, not among the front runners, but lower down the pack. So you say the needle is unlikely to move much, and indeed that it's only pundits such as yourself who are watching these debates anyhow. Is there a point at this early stage focusing on these numbers at all? Well, actually, the numbers are better than you might think by this point in the cycle. So we went back and looked at previous primaries And polling numbers through the summer are not a great predictor of who the party winds up nominating. But by this point in the cycle, by October, polls have a better than 50-50 shot of picking the eventual nominee as the frontrunner. So I think you can look at the race now, look at Biden and Warren being so far ahead of the other two, and say it's pretty likely that this race will be a Biden-Warren race. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks, Jason. There's endless talk of the ever-thinning Democratic field. But in principle, the spot for Republican presidential candidate is also up for grabs. No incumbent president in modern history has lost a primary nomination. But that doesn't stop people trying. This year, it's former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh, former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, and the former governor of South Carolina, Mark Sanford. None of them is likely to oust President Trump, who's called them the Three Stooges. But Mr. Sanford stands the best chance, despite being best known for a scandal a decade ago. In June 2009, then-Governor Sanford went missing. He told aides he'd be hiking the Appalachian Trail. It only fueled confusion over the mysterious disappearance of Governor Mark Sanford this week. Phone calls went unanswered. Seemingly, not even his wife knew where he was. The governor was caught this morning sneaking back into town, choosing to fly into Atlanta. In fact, Mr. Sanford had snuck off to Argentina to visit his mistress. We landed in Buenos Aires a couple hours ago, and I've been talking to people, and it's all everybody's talking about. You just... I've been unfaithful to my wife. I developed um, a relationship with a, which started as a dear, dear friend. Improbably, his political career was little affected by the scandal. He went on to serve nearly six years in Congress. And now he wants to go up against Donald Trump. 
This is a real threat to every American taxpayer and every American at large. So I went to Columbia State House where Mark Sanford was giving his second introductory campaign rally of the day. James Astle writes Lexington, our column about U.S. politics. And I saw him make his pitch as a primary challenger to Donald Trump. But instead, his very budget is proposing... In front of a majestic audience of about three journalists and a couple of volunteers on his campaign staff. And then I helped carry the life-size cutout of Trump that he bought on Amazon as a campaign prop and went with him to his car. You happy with how that went? What's that? Pretty good? You happy? Yeah, I don't know. It's all on the edit room floor, as you know. <laughs> and we drove a couple of hours to Charlottesville, where he lives, uh, and he gave his third rendition of that stump speech of the day. So I saw him campaign twice, and we drove for a couple of hours and chatted during that time in between those two rallies. Go up the second light, stay in the right-hand lane, stay in the right-hand lane. So what chances do you think Mark Sanford, or indeed any of the three challengers uh, to, to Mr. Trump, what, what chances do they really have? They have, as things stand, almost no chance of actually beating Donald Trump in a primary contest. The Republican Party is making it increasingly hard even for there to be any kind of an open contest. Several states have said that they won't hold presidential primary votes. And Mr. Trump is very popular in the Republican Party, more popular than most of his Republican predecessors. And what does Mr. Sanford have to say about Mr. Trump? He says that Trump is not a conservative, and Sanford, despite his sort of checkered personal issues and behavior in public office, has been a consistent, one might almost say principled, small government conservative. He criticizes Trump, therefore, ballooning the budget deficit. He worries a, a huge amount about the fiscal issue. He also criticizes Trump's trade policies. He's a free trader. Trump is a protectionist. He criticizes Trump's assault on institutions, the Justice Department, the FBI. We have a system that was devised and built upon being a nation of laws and not men. Fundamentally, his political construct is about him as a political figure, as opposed to the institutions that are the linchpin to the very balance of power that would bring a Trump or somebody else to office. And finally and fourthly, he criticizes Trump for the tone that he has brought to public discourse in America. If people believe that everybody is out there for some political angle, people lose trust in our system. And, and again, that's the glue that holds the balance of power in, in place. And these are just his observations as a, as a member of the party, or has he had sort of first-hand experience with the president? He has had a fair amount of first-hand experience of the president before he got the presidency, but also uh, in the White House, he was brought in for policy debates, which weren't really debates, as he points out, because the president was so completely uninterested in the details of any policy. And then you'd be in these meetings in the White House, and you were just absolutely flabbergasted by the degree to which he didn't care about policy. He just wanted to win. Do, do you think he understands any complicated policy? I haven't seen that to be a focal point. I think I should, should add to that that Sanford's criticisms of 
Trump are not particularly novel. They're very widely held amongst elected Republicans. What's novel, what's very rare, is the extent to which Sanford has has shown a little bit of spine, is actually prepared to speak out. Well, but in previous eras, Mr. Sanford's backstory might make him politically damaged goods. How is that backstory affecting him on the campaign trail now? You refer, I think, Jason, to that remarkable period in 2009 where the governor of South Carolina just sort of disappeared and his aides didn't know where he was. It seems his wife didn't know where he was. And it turned out that he was not, as he'd suggested, hiking the Appalachian Trail, but had flown down to Argentina to see his mistress. He was known as the love gov in South Carolina. He was castigated, embarrassed, humiliated, and left office in South Carolina with a terrible cloud hanging over him. Nonetheless, he launched a remarkable comeback only four years later when he stood for his old seat in Congress and won it. He's a pretty good campaigner. And perhaps where you have a strong partisan tendency in particular, voters are readier to forgive those kind of scandals than they once would have been. They know I'm one of them, with all my ups and downs. And and oddly enough, there's almost an added level of relatability that comes with public failure, because people are like, well, okay, I know you're imperfect, and I am too, so now let's have a conversation about it. Which isn't possible when everybody's pretending they're perfect. And with that sort of story of redemption, you, you mentioned that he has an absolutely minuscule chance of, of presenting a real challenge to, to Mr. Trump. Does, does he stand a chance at least of shifting the debate a bit, reducing some of the president's grip on the party, or, or at least you know giving some sucker to the, the parts of the party that are as perhaps equally disgusted with the president as he is? I think he does stand a chance of that, yes. I think that polls give some indication that between 10 and 20 percent of Republicans are not happy with President Trump, even if the other 80-odd percent are hysterically enthusiastic about the president. And given that we can expect a general election fought on very tight margins, as 2016 was, Trump doesn't have to lose much support to be quite damaged going into the general election. And I think that Sanford or the, the primary challenges generally, but I think Sanford may be the most formidable, can disenchant those warier Trump Republican voters by reminding them that Trump has flouted the principles that the party was supposed to stand for. Free trade, small government, concern for, for deficits, and of course, probity in public office. I think there is no doubt that he can bruise Trump, even if he almost certainly can't beat him. James, thank you very much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. It was a feat previously thought to be impossible, or at least generations away. But on Saturday, Elliot Kipchoge ran a marathon in less than two hours. 
He beat his own world record by almost two minutes, finishing in one hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. This achievement doesn't just show the ability and capacity of the human body, also the rapidly changing world of sports technology. In terms of cultural significance, this result will be remembered as being on a par with Roger Bannister's breaking of the four-minute mile. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist and editor of Game Theory, our blog on sports. The BBC compared it to Edmund Hillary reaching the summit of Everest. It will stand out as one of the great sporting moments of our times. But it doesn't go in the record books. No, it won't go in the official record books because it was achieved under artificial conditions. The organisers essentially tried to reduce any outside interference. So that means finding the best possible track, so something with sort of smooth corners, often a very sort of repetitive lap structure. They want as cool temperature as possible. And that's sort of okay, I guess. Setting the route doesn't seem like a massive infraction. The, the thing that was the bigger advantage was the drafting. One of the biggest problems that marathon runners come up against is air resistance. And if you can reduce that, it'll have substantial benefits over the course of two hours. So at this attempt, there was a, a car in front of the runner at all times, which offered a massive windbreak. It also had a laser beam pointing out exactly where he needed to be in order to, to stay on record pace. But then he also had this enormous phalanx of runners rotating in and out in front of him and on his sides to make sure that there was basically no drag on him at all. And sports scientists reckon that could have benefited him by up to 2 or 3%, which is basically the difference between this time that he managed and Mr. Kipchoge's official record, 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds. So the difference between the official record and this groundbreaking moment could have been entirely down to air resistance, basically. But another advantage that was less obvious to people tuning in and watching the race was the shoe that Mr. Kipchoge was wearing. How do you mean? What was interesting about the shoes? He's wearing a special shoe produced by Nike. This is perfectly legal, but it's actually quite controversial among running aficionados because it essentially has a spring in it. It has a carbon fibre plate that absorbs a lot of the pressure that the runner puts down on their foot and then gives it back. It's called the Vaporfly shoe. The original one they produced was called the 4% because it claimed to improve running efficiency by 4%. And independent studies have verified this. And if it's true that this benefited Mr. Kipchoge by anything like 4%, then in fact that's another four or five minutes shaved off his time on top of the drafting. And so so this is a one-off pair of shoes for him? Well, it was one-off in the sense that Nike specifically tailored a shoe for him for this event, but the Vaporfly range is available to any runner who would like to have it. Of course, lots of professionals are using it, and we've seen a whole load of records tumble in the last 18 months. In fact, to slightly less fanfare, a day after Mr. Kipchoge broke two hours, Bridget Koskai, another runner, broke the women's marathon record, which had stood for nearly 16 years. Records are tumbling everywhere as these runners are propelled ever faster forward by their Nike gear. This puts me in mind of the story of, of the Speedo full-body swimsuit that was a similar cause for the tumbling of lots of records and which was eventually outlawed. Why, why is this not the same story? I think it will be the same story. I think that the issue there was that these Speedo swimsuits, which were introduced in sort of 2007, 2008 were so much superior to anything else on the market and anything that had come before them. And I remember they were used in the 2008 Olympics and only two athletes who weren't wearing them won Olympic gold medals. That was how important the suit was. And the Swimming Federation basically decided that because it was becoming impossible, A, to compare current swimmers with the people who'd come before them, 
And B, there's essentially an arms race between manufacturers that after Speedo came out with this suit, everyone else tried to produce something similar. And so rather than getting into this very difficult arms race that's almost impossible to regulate, they basically said, right, no bodysuits. And since then, a lot of records that were set 10 years ago are still standing. And I think that might be what happens with the shoe. It's one thing if everyone is using the same shoe because there's no obvious competitive advantage. But if we get into this arms race between shoe manufacturers for who can build the biggest spring, then it will become impossible to work out who is the best runner, really. So I think we could see these things outlawed quite quickly. The question is whether that will be in time for the Olympics next year or not. James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.